0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge of Wharton.
1: Hi, my name is Stephanie Creary and I'm Assistant Professor of Management at the Wharton School University of Pennsylvania and I'm delighted to be here today with Gwen Houston who is Consultant Advisor committed to issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. For over 20 years, she was a business leader and a former chief diversity officer for several global corporations. Gwen, we're so excited to have you here and to learn from you. Our topic today is uh, is around the broad idea of creating equity and opportunity, no small feat, um, in corporations today. But we're interested in getting your insights on this topic, um, what you have had to uh, deal with and address in the past, Um, our current times that we're dealing with now as issues of racial injustice and racism have become exacerbated and magnified on the global stage, and certainly our future. Is it hopeful, and and what do we have to think about that? So that's sort of going to be the flow of our conversation today, Um, and I'm just happy to have you here. Uh, You wrote this brilliant piece. Uh, It's called Corporate America's Black Equity Gap. CEOs must take the lead, and you posted it to Medium on June 29th, and I just, it hit me, I think, in a really um, deep place, probably because, you know, I am a black woman, and, and certainly a piece about black equity and black experiences in the workplace is, is going to feel personal, but like you, for, for some time, I've been examining these issues of, of, of corporate diversity inclusion, and I, wanna, I just wanted to start by reading uh, an excerpt Uh, just to set the stage for some of the more specific questions I have uh, uh, for you. So um, in, in reflecting on the past, here's what you said. For decades now, corporate diversity, equity, and inclusion programs have been in place across various U.S. industries. But the level of sustainable commitment from leadership has ebbed and flowed dramatically. As a retired corporate business leader and former chief diversity officer for several global corporations, this has been my life's work. Although diversity practitioners have effectively proven the business value of DEI initiatives, very few companies and organizations have made meaningful strides to improve the workplace. And then you go on to say that some industries are at the beginning of this work and some, but many are making little to no meaningful change. So let's start there with that sort of uh, I often like to refer to things as, you know, pre-summer of 2020. That was certainly the situation. Can we talk a little bit about the racial equity problem for Black professionals in the corporate sector? Historically, what is this problem, and how bad has it been?
0: Wow. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Stephanie. It's wonderful to engage in this type of conversation because it is, it's so timely, it's so urgent, it's so relevant, and, boy, is it real. Uh, so when it comes to talking about you know the whole issue of racial equity and 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 black professionals in the workplace, what I think what strikes me in terms of how severe and how how bad it is is that even after a generation of very well educated and um, and extraordinarily talented black professionals have forged a path through corporate America. And with another generation following, we still don't see significant and sustainable progress. Case in point, in 2014, black CEOs made up about 1.5, close to 2% of the Fortune 500. Today, that number is only four black CEOs making up less than 1% of the Fortune 500 population. So we're not moving in the right direction. You know, we're losing ground and it's this constant feeling of, you know, two steps forward, three steps back right. when it comes to to our, our success in the workplace. And I think that's what's uh, what's really glaring for me. Also, when you look at the, the, the nation's largest uh, healthcare companies, so you have, you know, CVS, uh, they have no black executives on their senior leadership team. What's interesting is they acquired Aetna, a company I used to work for, which had a, a black CEO and one of the most racially and gender diverse executive leadership teams I've ever worked for. And so, you know, you see that in finance, you've got Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, um, none of them have black professionals on the executive team. And then let's move to tech, which was my last foray. I retired as as Microsoft's chief diversity officer. Zero members of the executive leadership team at Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, and Google. So
1: this is a real
0: glaring issue.
1: You know, and I hesitate to ask this next question, especially since you just explained a downward trend um, in, in, Progress, if even you can sort of make a downward trend sound like progress. Um, <laughs> right. My question is for you: is and, and maybe this is part of our lessons le- learned, right? What practices have have firms put in place to manage this issue? Because clearly, they're they're probably not helping. Would be my right. assumption based on those statistics that you just shared with us. But what have we been doing? What have firms been doing? And 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 what's been the challenge here?
0: Well, as you said earlier, they have embraced, I think, to a significant. the value proposition of diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. I think that, you know, that being that diverse teams are much more innovative, much more effective at problem solving and creatively anticipating the marketplace than uh, homogeneous teams are. Uh, Beyond that, they've invested in uh, in unconscious bias training. Uh, There has been uh, strong recruiting efforts, uh, mostly at the entry level um, and maybe into early management. There have even been uh, a number of training programs, leadership development programs. There have been employee network groups to really help employees of diverse backgrounds uh, find affinity, help support the organization's business outcomes through recruiting, through retention, uh, through all kinds of initiatives, community-based as well. So there have been a lot of things done, but I think what's missing and what what causes companies to lose Um, you know, the, the progress they've made is that the commitment from the top is not there. And so what you and I both know is that effective DEI engagement is leader led to be the most progressive. It has to be led from the top. So the message is only as important as the messenger. And that is why my article focused on CEOs have to step up. You know they can no longer defer to HR or suggest, okay, it's let's go do DNI today. No. This work has to be central to a company's culture, as well as to as, as mission critical for driving significant and long term business progress. That's how important it has to
1: be. So let's unpack that a little bit because certainly you held this title of chief diversity officer, yes. um, and. Rightfully or wrongfully, this is sort of what has traditionally happened and certainly has happened now that there's all of these chief diversity officer roles mm-hmm. opened. I guess mm-hmm. what would be interesting to understand from your perspective is, what are the opportunities and the limitations of that role, and how what's the ideal working relationship between the CDO and the CEO? Because I, I feel like there's a, a tension and an opportunity there as we're having this conversation about whose responsibility is it, right. And so I've
0: had the chance to work in companies where the CDO role reported into HR versus reporting into a business president or the CEO. And it's an interesting difference in terms of that reporting relationship. And I'm not so sure I'm on I lean on the side of having the CDO role always report in the CEO because I think it to some extent it depends on the maturity of the company's leadership around this topic. Because I've reported into a CEO who couldn't care less that I was even there and really didn't exercise uh, or engage with me very often because he was uncomfortable with this work. and it was just something that you know that the, the leadership team chose to do because I think they were trying to force a lot of, a lot of change in this on um, this family-owned company at the time. What ended up happening though is that the CEO went out to a business roundtable to talk about diversity, never consulted me to say, how are we doing, give me some talking points, you know, as you would expect, and got blown out of the room by some of the CEOs from major corporations, and this is food and manufacturing, who really were doing some things, you really? know, to the best of their ability, and also were sharing their, their deep frustrations with, you know, their sense of commitment, but not necessarily seeing the the outcomes they desired. The next thing I know, I came back, you know, I was at the office and I was told, you know, the CEO wants to see you. And I thought, I wonder what this is about. Right. And when I got up there, he said to me, you know, how long have you been with the company? And I said, uh, two years. And he said, well, I imagine you're about trying to leave. You know, I, I bet you're frustrated because I've not really connected with you. I've not spent much time with you. And he said, and I just came back from a meeting and it's sad to say it took, my own circle of CEOs to really open my eyes to the importance of this work. And he said, If you stick it out with me, I promise I will make it up to you. And we will drive this deep and, and aggressively. And we're going to start with some, you know, give me five things you would want to see me do tomorrow. If I
1: but could. What were some you know, of those he, things that you told him you wanted him to do?
0: First of all, I wanted him to get a little bit of education. And I always start with that because. Sometimes, you know, when right, rightfully or wrongfully, when CEOs are empowered um, by the board and have high expectations, they tend to imagine they should know everything. And quite honestly, nobody does. And I, I personally, you know, submit to a learner mentality that I'm all about always learning, continuous learning. So I wanted to begin with some key books that I thought were, were important I also, and and one of the books I recommended at the time, this was years ago, was a book by uh, Dr. Beverly Tatum, Why -hmm. Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Stories of Race. And I set him up with a mentor, and that mentor was um, Dr. Jeanetta Cole. Mm -hmm. Um, I had him meet with employee groups and spend time out in the field. And then I wanted him to have a, a deep conversation with me about the strategy like, how do we get the leaders to own? aspects of the strategy and drive greater accountability at the top of the house. Right. So those were some of the things that that we immediately began to put into place. So I think that, and he said, I also invited Ted Childs. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember Ted, who was probably the guru of diversity, chief diversity officers at IBM under Gerstner at the time. And I invited him to come and speak to the executive leadership team. And Ted came in with all of his tedness, yeah. which is profound and um, amazing and uh, awe-inspiring, and after he left, my CEO said to me, "You know why he's so effective? Because his CEO empowered him. That's what I need to do for you." Right. And boy, was that a turning point, and probably one of the best experiences and relationships I ever had with a CEO was in that, you know, in that scenario and and the, and the aftermath of it. So. So a CEO empowerment, endorsement of, of this role and what it can become uh, can be the difference between a highly effective sense of DEI engagement, commitment, and progress versus one that can hardly get off the ground or is fleeting at best. So it's a lot about that senior executive and CEO accountability and, and uh, empowerment.
1: So before I ask you some questions about, that bring us to the current context, I have one more question for you. Um, And I think you started to hint at this a little bit when you were saying the progress that's been made around the business case for diversity. What would you say, if you had to summarize, are the key challenges or have been the key challenges in creating a conversation about racial equity and inclusion in corporations in the past?
0: Yeah, I think in the past has been the discomfort that comes from, you know, white leaders in thinking that, um, you know, that they are the cause, that they are the problem. And um, and so, you know, and I, I even wrote that, you know, for a long time, it seemed that racial issues were black people's problems to go fix, go resolve. That, that's how it felt for me and many others. Um, and so it was really difficult to talk about racial equity unless the world gave us a major I- reason to go do it. Right. Otherwise, in the tech world, there is a desire or a comfort with exceptionalizing the problem, mm-hmm. saying that there just aren't enough blacks in the pipeline getting uh, computer science you know, degrees, engineering degrees, um, becoming developers. They're, they're just not there. And, and eventually to prove that wrong, I mean, they said the same thing about women, too, in computers in, in computing. And we started to go gather numbers um, in partnership with the talent acquisition team. Uh, we engaged upon an effort to hire a recruiting firm to just go find all of the individuals, map them out across the U.S. who graduated with those degrees and who happen to be Hispanic or black. Mm-hmm. And we presented this sort of mapping and mm-hmm. said, here they are. And they're yeah. there. They exist. Now we just have to convince them to come work for us. Because right. guess what? Just like women, they're not choosing us. Yeah. That, you know, even though the pipeline may not be as robust as we would want it to be ultimately in this field, it is, it is certainly present and it exists. But they are opting out of coming into companies like ours. They're choosing to, you know, women were choosing to go to banking and healthcare companies and work in as computer scientists, technologists in those firms because they were more female friendly. Right. And so certain groups of color, Latinos, Latinx and blacks were not choosing to come to big mega companies, perhaps like Microsoft and, and, and others. So so it was to help them see the era of that thinking, because that took they that that let them off of the moral hook or the moral the emotional hook of thinking that they just weren't we were not aggressively going after this population. We had got gotten complacent thinking that they just don't exist. And now we had to come up with a new way to explain this outcome. And it forced them it forced them to really think on it. The other thing is we went and did a study of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we talk about the value proposition of DEI and also talk about the fact that we want to be able to reflect, understand, and anticipate an increasingly diverse customer base. Mm -hmm. And so we went and did research on who over-indexed on Microsoft products. And it Mm -hmm. turned out the number one and number two groups who over-indexed on using our products were Latinos and black people. Mm -hmm. And it was like a drop-the-mic moment. Uh, yeah. A drop your surface moment. Uh, <laughs> and and you could see how shocked leaders were. And we presented this at a, a broader leadership uh, conference or a discussion. And it was a real eye opening moment. And those are the types of things that CDOs have to do to really convert leaders into rethinking. So sort of like unlearn. I want you to learn about some stuff and mm-hmm. then I want you to unlearn some things you were doing and relearn how to go after this group of very, very talented people. And by the way, when I, when we talk about diversity, there's no substitute for quality. Right. One of the phrases I'd love to get out of people's mouths are saying qualified, diverse candidates. You you really think I want to go after unqualified talent? That's not who I am, but those terms are not mutually exclusive. And those are some of the microaggressions that, that people of color, black people experience all the time, that we're lowering the bar, lowering the standards to hire them.
1: And that is, it couldn't be furthest from the truth. Right. So it's interesting, as, as I listen to you talk about all this work that you did um, it, from, a, from a tech space to attract and recruit and bring people to tech, I can't help but um, reflect on how much we've talked about in the context of Uh, You know, my own university is is how we've seen the shift from students who've traditionally been going to banking and consulting moving towards tech. So I think, you know, just sort of anecdotally uh, qualitatively listening to uh, what's been shared with us, I think there was some effectiveness to this strategy to draw people towards tech. Um, That said, I wanted to reflect back on, uh, I I actually had pulled that same quote that you had started to share about uh, black people's issues. So I want to read that as I transition us into the present context. And so you write, um, after years of being told that racism was black people's issues to solve, this new response of white solidarity is at times disorienting. But also cautiously uplifting. It is a time of deep reckoning and activism. I found that very powerful. So I want to, in your own words, and certainly I just gave them some some of them back to you. Is, is how would you describe this outpouring of corporate support for black racial equality for black lives this summer, the summer of twenty twenty?
0: Yeah, it's been it, it's been very difficult. To express the myriad of emotions I have had and I know so many of my friends and colleagues have had uh, as we watched what unfolded uh, in this country. I still don't have words to explain it, but I I don't think any of us saw it coming. You know, while we hoped for um, more than just our own bodies to be present in this in this public demonstration and outcry for social justice, um, who would have expected that such a broad coalition of, of people, I mean, w- white suburban housewives, um, you know, certainly millennials, Xers, boomers, um, corporate leaders, all stepping into the mix to declare um, how injustice was and, 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 and calling for deep activism and deep change uh, at the, the heart of this country, you know, it's sort of like uh, it was a soul-searching moment, in a highly reflective moment. So it's it's been um, it's it's been crazy. I, I I really haven't known what to make of it, and I think part of it is deeply personal for me because uh, I'm so afraid to get let down if I get if I allow myself to get emotionally invested in the power of these voices, even though I do believe in them. I'm so not sure where this is going to go and if we're going to hit a free fall. Because when you think about the cross section of so many different coalitions of types of people coming uh, together uh, to demand equality, you have to wonder how do we problem solve for such a a diverse spectrum of expectations? Right. Uh, Because our millennials will want a certain Outcome and will that match what you know other groups expect and want? So, so I, I, I've been a little restrained uh, on the emotional side because I've I, I feared
1: getting let down. Uh, so, let's talk a little bit about, um, and we started to get to this, but I just want to give you an opportunity to, to say more. And um, when you look inside corporate. Entities. Mm -hmm. You know, we could think about the talent management system. We could think about just day-to-day management. What would you say have been some of the barriers that have prevented this type of support internally, internally to firms?
0: Yeah, I think the barriers, uh, particularly around black uh, black equity, is that people have sometimes lulled themselves into a false sense of believing, "Hey, you know, we're all equal. All lives matter." And in the workplace, it's all about meritocracy, when in fact, that is probably the biggest misconception that I've seen in many of these corporate sectors, because there is so much um, opportunity and, and, and privilege, if you will, afforded certain communities at the expense of others. And I think not coming to grips with that, and not understanding that, and not having willing to, to have an honest conversation about that. I think in the advent too of electing a black president, right. a lot of people wanted to believe, hey, you know, we're a post-racial society now. We don't have any issues. Everybody's equal. Don't ask me for you know for uh, to, for me to have to give up my piece of the pie so that someone like you can actually get ahead because you guys have made progress. You're in. You know, everything's good. And I think that that's the biggest misconception uh, about racial equity in the workplace is that everybody is is, you know, on the level playing field. And we know we're not. Um, I wrote about Amy Cooper in mm-hmm. my piece and, the, and what she represents. Um, Amy Cooper, for those who just as a refresher, was the white woman who uh, was in Central Park with her dog and she came into an area where there was a black man uh, bird watching and there was a legal leash requirement for dogs and she didn't have her dog on the leash. And this man asked her to please put her dog off on a leash. And he videoed her ranting at him. And one of her rants was to say, I'm going to call the police and tell them that a black man is harassing me. is threatening my life. Mm-hmm. And, and and the fact what's huge about Amy Cooper and her presence and. And, and what she understood was that her behaviors toward this individual were conscious. There was nothing unconscious about her racial rant. Right. There was nothing unconscious. But number two, she also understood the power that she had in this position as a white woman calling the police about a black man. She understood all too well that her white privilege afforded her the ability to do that. And imagine the police would just come to her rescue and arrest this guy or worse off, even kill him right there for nothing. But she knew it. And she's a woman in her 40s. And I imagine working in the financial industry, Amy Cooper had an opportunity to recruit, hire, promote and manage black people. And I
1: wonder how that went. I mean, she's an executive, right? The she was she an works.
0: executive. She was a VP. Absolutely. And it made me reflect on the reality that we have personalities like Amy's and even worse, perhaps, in our workplaces because our workplaces are a microcosm of broader society. What's happening in the world finds its way into the work environment. So we're not on a level playing field. This is not a post-racial society, not when you have a 40-year-old white woman doing what she did and obviously educated, obviously um, very successful in her professional life. So, so to the extent to which Amy Cooper mindsets or mentalities exist in the workplace, how then could we say that we're post-racial? that everybody's on a level playing field. And I think it's because of that that we see at times black people getting some of the lowest promotions in the company. Uh, When you think about um, um, what we call readiness for advancement, promotion readiness, we sometimes say we'll assess people, you know, ready in two to three years, um, you know, three to five years, you know, or, or longer. And I know in one company, we actually did a study of that, and we began to look at the difference between how uh, black and brown people, blacks and Hispanics or Latinos, um, progressed along those career advancement um, recommendations versus white people. Mm -hmm. And we often found that if they if if for a black person, it was noted that they were ready for a promotion in you know two to four years. It actually took three to five or it right. actually took double mm-hmm. um, for them. We could we could see evidence of that with no real explanation for why. Um, so the reality is, is that, yeah, we've lulled people have lulled themselves into a false sense of thinking. That everything's good and everything's OK. But I have often been in rooms where the conversation allows us, you know, if, if I'm in HR to look at the data mm-hmm. on performance ratings, if you will, and see where the dem- racial demographic mixes come out. And in many s- sad so- scenarios, I have seen situations where uh, black and brown people are in the lower quadrant of those promotion opportunities or those ratings and having to to begin the series of questions like a two-year-old but why mm-hmm. but why is this per- so okay so you say they plateau but why did they plateau who was managing them did they have a mentor did anybody reach out you know and you start to do that and you can see you're aggravating people because you're mm-hmm. forcing them to have to go get a reason rather right. than an excuse Right. to just say, well, you know, they just they just didn't perform, or they're just not a fit. That's the other catch-all phrase for when certain people don't quite measure up or we're not comfortable with how they show up in the workplace, the excuse again, not a good fit.
1: So there's something that you said that I, I definitely want to amplify, um, and that is this idea that we don't leave ourselves at home. We right. actually bring those same selves to, to work. And so, whether it's Amy Cooper or somebody else, that's right. If you mm-hmm. see people acting and engaging in racist, sexist, homophobic ways outside of the workplace, it's very hard for us to imagine that they wouldn't be doing those same things inside of the workplace. And when that happens, that's why we have inequity and lack of opportunity. Is, is that that's fair right. summary of? Absolutely,
0: that's fair. That's very eloquently said too. And I and I think it just what I. What I started to do in some companies again the education the book reading especially if I have senior executive leaders who were not born in the United States I try to you know give them a sense of how can I offer you something that will help you you know get a grasp of the magnitude the gravity Mm -hmm. Uh, of of racial oppression in this country, and many of them have absolutely embraced the opportunity. And I think what they've come away with oftentimes, and and, and I love when they want to have that deep conversation, is how did I not know? How did I not see the, the depth of these inequities in society? How did I not, how did I overlook it? And the truth is, when something isn't your reality, you don't see it. When it's not, you know, it's not your perspective. And, and it's like like anything, you know, imagine, for example, um, someone who has not had an experience with some type of disability suddenly finds themselves wheelchair bound. They start to experience the world very differently. But before, had a person said to them in a wheelchair, you know, I really can't handle this because it's not done this way, it's not done that, it's not, it's not convenient for me, this environment is not inclusive for me. And, you know, you might not be able to understand what they're talking about because it's not your reality. Mm -hmm. What's important when that happens is that you see this as a learning opportunity to broaden your insights and knowledge about things that you just don't know about. You're not aware. You're not um, perhaps you're not paying attention to some extent, because I certainly think when it comes to race, I don't know how they don't know it, but. Okay, um, let's talk about all the things that have happened in the news. And I think for a lot of the scenarios where we see the police issues happening to people, and that's why I I like the Amy Cooper example so much, because it's not about the police killing black people, because I think we've almost become desensitized to it as a culture, because we see it so much and it's always been out there. And in order to protect themselves emotionally, a lot of people just sort of shut that thing down. But when you have a regular person behaving in this way to a black man for no real reason, it sort of ch- shifts the conversation to, wow, white privilege is real. And this sense of thinking that her, you know, her her ability to call the police t- to get this man removed is OK, that what she did was OK. So I think the ability to, to, to help them see, no, this has always existed, You just didn't notice it. But now that you do, you can't unsee this. You cannot unsee it. And it should stay in your mind and it should cause you to look at things with a new filter. Right. It it, it should change the way you view things going forward.
1: So you've already started to give us some brilliant uh, suggestions for the future. Certainly, certainly. Uh, you know the title of your article, where you're talking about the CEOs should should lead, is certainly a very concrete uh, suggestion. So you're talking about helping them to see. Before I ask you about some more uh, concrete actions that you think we should do, and by we I mean senior leaders, middle managers, and individual contributors, basically people who have no particular authority but certainly might have passion or responsibility. Yeah. I, I want to just give one last piece uh, uh, from your article that I I thought was a a nice way of beginning to frame the possibilities for the future. And you said, um, you know, with reference to uh, the CEO is the very first step these leaders should take in mitigating racial inequities in society is to look inward starting with their own corporate cultures. And that struck me, I think, as being very powerful because so much about these statements is reflecting on external society. And I think that is important because, again, I think it helps people to understand is the external world is showing up inside. But I think it's also very possible that we get stuck Mm -hmm. there, that it becomes a very philanthropic um, set of strategic initiatives as opposed to um, you know, retooling um, and unearthing the issues that exist I- inside our corporate culture. So let's talk about cultural change. Let's talk about interpersonal behaviors. Um, how do we begin to think about from this perspective, again, of those three groups, senior leaders, middle managers, and then individual contributors, what should be, they be doing to, to help advance racial equity and inclusion?
0: Well, certainly senior leaders have a considerable amount of power and positioning um, on, on this topic that the other groups don't have. But I think at a base level, all groups need to invest in this effort. Uh, whether you're an individual contributor or a middle manager or a senior leader, d- decide, make the choice to consciously invest in issues of equity uh, for all employees Uh, I think, you know, for some reason, and I don't know if this is a um, if my theory holds water, but I kind of feel like if you make the work environment equitable for black people, then probably all ships will rise with that one, because certainly we've seen historically that with initiatives like affirmative action, uh, white women have actually seen the greatest gains as a result of those. So I tend to think that when we focus on racial equity, uh, all all boats get lifted. all all people's lives improve. Um, but I think it's about having crucial conversations. I think the, the the honest dialogues, creating a safe environment inside the workplace to have these honest dialogues is critical mm-hmm. because, uh, especially if it, when working in very, very large organizations where you have hundreds of thousands of people you know, there and you're trying to get a grip around what can you do, uh, how can you help the culture transform to be more inclusive. Um, I do believe that seeing people as individuals and learning their stories, getting to know people, having that sense of connection across a shared humanity makes a huge difference. And one of the things before I left Microsoft that we we were really invested on trying to do that. And we created with an external consultant uh, an a learning and development initiative, not a training, a mm-hmm. learning and development initiative called Dialogues Across Differences. Mm. And we used theatrical, you know, people, actors, who were very well honed in HR policy, mediation. And they would create scenes from the workplace that were very credible and real to our culture mm-hmm. and freeze then the activity on stage at the height of a conflict mm-hmm. and then engage with the audience and what they saw. And now throughout my 25 plus years, I've worked with a number of theatrical groups. They're not all equal. Mm-hmm. This one was extraordinarily good. It is a facilitated Um, scenario as well. And the facilitator plays an an important role with setting the tone in the room and helping to manage the dialogue. Because you can have saboteurs in the audience like anything else who (laughs) really don't want to buy into stuff. But but the level of in-depth tension at times, but deep exposure and learning that took place in those sessions I think garnered us some of the best applause from inside Microsoft. Um, people said this was the first time that they had had a chance to hear a person share their truth in in a way that was meaningful to them because they knew this person. They had no idea that they had these lived experiences. So I think when people come together in safe places to have these conversations and their lived experiences. Are shared in ways that are deep and meaningful and help create empathy in the workplace. Then you get somewhere. You kind of break down the silos or the the the, the notion that you already understand what's happening in the world and and you you know you don't want to invest. Um, but I, so I think that that those 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 sessions were extremely helpful. We learned to do them virtually and we did them in on every continent, which is not easy. Um, so I think things like that really, really help. I also believe that at the executive level, having intentional talent talks around Black professionals, women, Latinos, um, Asians, all the different groups is important. Because what I find in organizations where, where particularly uh, Black and Latinos are not well represented no one sees them Mm -hmm. you know they can become very invisible they can become the only one in the team and and it is a it is an issue with retention because of that especially in the tech world developers coming into large teams and you're the only woman of color woman or black or brown woman there you feel so isolated so alone uh, and it can be really hard early in your career to build the resilience for that. So I think intentional talent talks, get to know who these individuals are and stop just looking at the data, looking at spreadsheets and numbers, because at the end of the day, and I I used to say this all the time, hey, they are real people connected to these these decimal points and percentages. Mm -hmm. And they have very differing experiences in our workplace. And it's so important that we drill down on what that is and not just focus on the numbers. We have to focus on people at individual levels.
1: I think this has been such a wonderful opportunity to learn um, the core set of issues, but also to feel that there are things that can be done. And I love these two examples. Certainly, we've heard a lot about having conversations and why that's important, and we've certainly seen an equal amount of criticism. on well, Let's stop. Ta- let's stop talking and start acting. But talking actually is action, especially when we need to learn, right? We need to understand right. before we actually do. And so I think that sometimes gets shortchanged. And, and certainly, you know, a, a, as a faculty member at, at an institution, we love talking about evidence-based practice. And so we love our numbers. But what you're saying is there's a story behind the numbers and, and let's make sure we've Absolutely. got that right so that we can create um, policies, practices, initiatives that are, that are targeted um, for the specific needs of individuals and not just based on our gross estimations. Gwen, thank you so with, much for joining us. I just um, I had would, one, go ahead. One, go ahead.
0: one quick thing, sorry, to, you know, to talk about how do we move from, you know, from conversation to action. The intentional talent talks are all about getting us to action. Right. Because when you drill down and understand who these individuals are, what they've accomplished, in their time at your company, or even prior to, and where they hope to go, what what are their ambitions career wise? Then you can be much more strategic in making sure that something great happens for them. That we now you know who they are. Let's go move them forward. And we have, in, in some companies, taken aggressive action steps and created the plans. As here, are the here are the ready for promotion now people. They have hit all of the buttons that we've said we needed. Go promote them within the next month. Here's what you will do. We actually created the action step for the leader and said, here's what you will go do now. So that can actually be one of the most aggressive and probably most successful approaches because it's, it is evidence-based, and now it helps the leader know how to go move forward with the right steps. And, uh, and it was one of the most, I think, successful initiatives that I had seen in my career.
1: Fantastic. Gwen, thank you so much. Your your time, your expertise is absolutely an invaluable resource for us all. I look forward to continuing to engage with you um, around the topic and seeing all the great work you're doing. So thank you again. And, and again, the article that Gwen wrote is called Corporate America's Black Equity Gap. CEOs Must Take the Lead. It was published on Medium on June 29th, 2020. Um, have a great uh, afternoon, Gwen, and I'll talk to you soon. You. you too.
0: Thanks so much, Stephanie. Enjoyed it. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.